Thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Centre for Catholic Studies at Durham University in the UK, a centre for Catholic theology in the Public Academy. For more information, go to centreforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following paper was presented in September 2019 as part of a conference on Anglican-Catholic relations marking the 450th anniversary of the 1569 Northern Uprising. It starts with a paper by the Reverend Professor Charlotte Methuen, entitled The Treasures of Faith and Order, Bequeathed as a Heritage by the Past to the Present, Anglicans and the Challenges of Receptive Ecumenism. It is followed by a paper by Professor Paul D. Murray, entitled Tasks Ahead, Catholic Receptive Learning, in service of whole church Catholic flourishing and Anglican Catholic communion. So in 1920, the Anglican bishops gathered for the first of the Lambeth Conferences after the First World War. Um, the Lambeth Conference had been planned to take place in 1918, but there was a little problem about that, um, and so it was put off to 1920, really to give the bishops a chance to welcome the troops home in 1919 before leaving the, their continental diocese to come to Lambeth for a, a conference in 1920. The bishops assembled, as you can see them there, offered a clarion call to unity, um, called, uh, published under an appeal to all Christian people. It arose from their vision of a united church, as they emphasised in their text. The vision which rises before us is that of a church genuinely Catholic, loyal to all truth and gathering into its fellowship all who profess and call themselves Christians, within whose visible unity all the treasures of faith and order, bequeathed as a heritage by the past to the present, shall be possessed in common and made serviceable to the whole body of Christ. Within this unity, Christian communions now separated from one another would retain much that has long been distinctive in their methods of worship and service. It is through a rich diversity of life and devotion that the unity of the whole fellowship will be fulfilled. It's this text, this extract from the appeal, which provides the title for my paper. The Anglican bishops of affirmation that in a united church all the treasures of faith and order bequeathed as a heritage by the past to the present shall be possessed in common and made serviceable to the whole body of Christ. The bishops went on to comment that however at present we are all organised in different groups. It's at the bottom. Um, we are all organised in different groups each one keeping to itself gifts that rightly belong to the whole fellowship and tending to live its own life apart from the rest. Their vision of unity was the mutual sharing of those gifts currently kept each, by each denomination to themselves. A hundred years later, it seems to me, although a great deal has changed on, an, on the ecumenical scene, their vision still speaks into the situation of divided churches. And in my view, it's a vision that fits well with the principles of receptive ecumenism which underlie this conference. However, I don't really want to start with 1920, I want to start with the 16th century, because this conference has used the Northern Rebellion of 1569 as a jumping off point to explore Anglican Catholic relations. As a Reformation historian who is also an, a committed ecumenist, this historically anchored approach confronts me with two radically different interpretations of Anglicanism, which I have lived with in tension for quite a long time. And actually, I want to begin this paper by reflecting on that tension, on how and indeed whether they fit together. Because the rebellion of 1569, as we've been reminded on several occasions, gives us an image of the Church of England in the final third of the 16th century, which is not very ecumenical at all. It's a church against which the uprising was directed in an attempt not only to remove Elizabeth I from the throne and to replace her with Mary, Queen of Scots, but thereby, as Eamon Duffy reminded us, to return the English realm and its people to the traditional church, the true church in the view of the, rebe of the rebels. How much this represents an actual embrace of, or indeed knowledge of, Catholicism amongst the people of the northeast of England is a question which, for me, remains open to debate. 
For although Eamon Duffy argued persuasively that much of the Northeast was still effectively Catholic, we do also know that 20 years earlier, John Knox had been attracted quite a following when he was preaching in Berwick and Newcastle, which is not actually very far from here. And that suggests that actually there was some interesting openness to um, a much more Protestant view of the Church of England than actually was being promulgated even in the 1550s or in the early 1550s. The English church under... Uh, the, the, the 1569 rebellion shows us a contemporary understanding of the, Christ, the English church under Elizabeth I as being decidedly not Catholic. The English church was a church which did not recognise the Pope's authority. It was a church which used a vernacular liturgy and vernacular scriptures. It was a church which, although the Queen didn't entirely approve of this, allowed its clergy to marry. And it was a church in which, um, which it was a church which had whitewashed church buildings, um, in which congregations were expected to gather around stone wooden tables and not stone altars, in which communicants were being offered bread and wine, um, communion in both kinds at the Eucharist. All of that added up in the judgment of contemporaries to a Protestant church. Moreover, it's apparent that during the 16th century um, that many continental Protestants saw the English church at least as it emerged in the reigns of Edward VI and Elizabeth I as largely in step with, although sometimes somewhat deviant from, um, their own churches, uh, their own Protestant churches. And so we can see... Um, sorry, I seem to have... Whoops. Another slide there. We can see Philip Melanchthon writing in um, 1560, um, in 1556, um, to the town council of Wesel, urging them to take in the ex English exiles, despite the fact that they didn't believe the same about the Eucharist, and to recognise that they were neither Anabaptists nor followers of Servetus, and to reason with them rather than simply expelling them. Certainly for Melanchthon, by this period, the English church was um, Protestant. So although the English church retained a liturgy in the form of the Book of Common Prayer, retained episcopally or episcopally, an episcopally ordered structure, retained a threefold ministry of bishops, priests and deacons, had dioceses and cathedrals, it remained a church in the late 16th century that to Protestants certainly did not, well, to many continental Protestants didn't look particularly Protestant, uh, Catholic, and to Catholics certainly didn't look Catholic. And yet, when we consider Anglican involvement in the ecumenical movement, we encounter quite a different understanding. The Anglican Church is the mediator between Catholic and Reformed. The Anglican Church is a church which considers itself Reformed Catholic or Catholic Reformed. The ecumenical vision of Anglicanism is of a tradition which holds together those two deeper traditions, Catholic and Reformed, Catholic and Protestant, and offers a bridge between them. So how does that vision fit with the Reformation historian's recognition that the English church was actually profoundly Protestant? Well, there's not time in this paper to go through the history of the rediscovery of the Catholic roots of the English church. But I think it is worth taking a, a sidestep to point out that this mediating or this in-between role began to be apparent already in the 17th century. And it becomes apparent particularly in conjunction with the bringing together of England and Scotland under the United Crown. Um, and there is James VI and I who introduced into Scotland in 1618 um, the so-called Articles of Perth, which required the Scottish Church to kneel to, for communion, to, um, uh, which allowed private baptisms, allowed sick communions, which required confirmation to be carried out by Scotland's newly reintroduced bishops, and required also the keeping of holy days and festivals, such as these minor festivals of Christmas and Easter. All of these were accepted practices in the Church of England, which we've just established at the end of the 16th century was pretty Protestant. 
but they were not seen as Protestant practices by the, Scottish, by the Church of Scotland, which had had a rather different experience of Reformation, much more allied to the Reformation in Geneva, and which condemned such, Protestant, uh, such practices as papist. And it's that combined with the um, introduction under Charles, the, uh, under Charles I of the, um, English, of the Scottish prayer book in 1637, which really leads to the signing of the, the Scottish, or the drafting of the Scottish National Covenant and ultimately to the wars of the Four Nations, um, which we tend to call the Civil War, to the Interregnum and then ultimately then to the, um, to the Restoration in the 1660s. But we can see in this period of the early 17th century, the Church of England not being viewed by the Scottish Church as adequately Protestant, while being viewed by many Catholics as certainly not Catholic. And I think this mediating in between, um, this not quite fitting, is fundamental to the somewhat ambiguous self-understanding of Anglicanism, which then emerges um, in the 17th century. It arises too, and I don't want to suggest that it doesn't, from the political vision of Elizabeth I and her advisers, who um, wanted to have a church settlement which was in many ways ambiguous and to some extent tolerant. Um, it arises also later absolutely no doubt from the way in which the evangelical revival and the Oxford movement relate to each other and the rediscovery of the Catholic heritage of the Church of England and the re-articulation of that heritage. But I want to suggest that Anglican approaches, to, and I would want to suggest that Anglican approaches to ecumenism in the later 19th and the early 20th centuries were therefore also influenced in a dual way. On the one hand, by the concerns shared with many in the mission field that European church divisions should not prejudice the preaching of the gospel overseas, but also they were deeply rooted in and influenced by the Oxford movement's views of the fundamental principles of what it meant to be Anglican. <coughs> so. And it's that context which gives rise, gives rise to a, a text which is absolutely key to understanding Anglican ecumenical agreement, uh, uh, engagement, which is the Lambeth Quadrilateral of, the 18, of 1868 in Chicago and then 1888 at the Lambeth Conference. In understanding the background to the Lambeth Quadrilateral, I think it's important to understand um, where the Episcopal Church in North America in the second half of the 19th century is coming from. The Scottish Episcopal Church took its identity from being a church which was precisely that, Episcopal and not Presbyterian. In adopting the same term for their own church, the Protestant Episcopal Church in the United States of America was also at the point of, of adopting that name or emphasising its ordering. It was not the Presbyterian Church of the United, um, church, uh, United States of America, as well as reminding itself that its first American bishop was consecrated by the bishops of the, of the SEC. As in 17th century England and Scotland, so also in 19th century America, there was considerable anxiety about the proper ordering of the church. And the Chicago Lambeth Quadrilateral, originally passed, as I said, by the bishops of the Protestant Episcopal Church in America in 1886, then accepted by the Lambeth Conference in 1888, brings these concerns into a sharp focus um, in a way that continues to define Anglican ecumenical engagement. The Lambeth Quadrilateral focuses on the Holy Scriptures, on the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the sacraments, the two sacraments ordained by Christ himself, baptism and the supper of the Lord, and then on the historic episcopate, locally adapted in the methods of its administration to the varying needs of the nations and peoples called of God into the unity of his church. Now that fourth article is not a hindrance on the whole, from our direction, from Anglican, this Anglican side, for discussions and negotiations, ecumenical dialogue with Episcopally ordered churches. 
However, it is the, um, the place which has, or the point which has proved a major sticking point for Anglicans and other churches which are, do not see themselves as ordered in the historic episcopate. What's intriguing in many of those discussions, however, is that agreement on the first three points has actually been fairly easy to, um, to uh, of the quadrilateral, has been fairly easy to achieve. Um, and so the Church of England, for instance, amongst other Anglican churches, quite often finds itself in a situation of having entered into relationships with other churches which do involve mutual recognition of the, them as churches on the basis of those first three points, but being unable to enter into reconciled um, reconciliation of ministries because the agreement can't be reached on the fourth point. Now, Paul Fiddis' question in the first session reminded us that this article-based approach to recognition of each other as churches can, however, still prove very difficult to churches which do not claim a creedal basis for their faith. So I come now to, uh, to really here to the end of my sort of historical reflection of this paper, section of this paper. What I wanted to do in this, paper, in this section is twofold. First, to remind us that the mediating position of Anglican churches in ecumenical dialogue is, as psychologists often remind us that things are, both a real strength and a real weakness. It's a strength because it does mean that Anglicans have a deeply rooted affinity to a range of different theological positions and to a broad spectrum of more confessionally defined churches. It's a weakness because this broad spectrum means, as Oliver O'Donovan commented last, yesterday, that it's all too easy for Anglicans to say that some Anglicans say. And one of the things I think the Roman Catholic Church has to offer Anglicans are actually structures which help to say, well, we say as Roman Catholics. We don't, we're not very good at that as Anglicans. It also sometimes means, I think, that individual Anglicans have a tendency to focus on and to privilege one area of ecumenism amongst others. I'm in communion with the old Catholic Church, but you're in communion with the Baptists. You know, and this kind of thing actually does happen. Um, and that means that there's also a bit of a question, I think, for Anglicans sometimes about standing to what's been achieved in ecumenical dialogues, apart from the one you happen to be engaged with yourself. And one of the things that struck me several times in this in this conference, particularly in your paper, was the way that ARCIC is brought into conversation with the Joint Declaration on Justification. Actually, I don't think we're very good at doing that as Anglicans. This historical overview also reminds us that the situation of all churches is historically contingent. In his opening lecture, Paul Avis raised questions about the historicity of a putative uni unified church. And I suspect I'll, you know, I've got it. Um, and I concur with those. Vincent of Laurent um, famously affirmed, and the old Catholics are, are very keen on citing this, Catholic is that which has been believed everywhere, always, and by everyone. But the late Bishop Joachim Fobber, the old Catholic Bishop of Germany, once reflected in a, in a, in a text on, 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 the, on what does it mean to be Catholicity. Church history shows us there's nothing that has been believed everywhere, always, and by everyone. Yeah, well, actually, let's hold on to that. The fixing of the canon, the agreement of doctrine, the development of ministerial structures, all of these are processes which involve time and argument and which almost inevitably resolved, uh, resulted in dis dissent and often schism. The church has always also changed and adapted to circumstance and context. We have to preach the gospel into our own context to our own generation. Anglicans are profoundly aware of their diversity, but I sometimes wonder if more apparently unified churches do not sometimes neglect their own diversity. One of the takeaways from this conference for me has been, especially after yesterday's visit to Ushaw, has, is how different Catholic history is depending on where you are. Uh, most of what I encounter more closely is German Catholicism. 
um, which was always had a legal status in German territories, not in all German territories, but in some German territories, and is not a story of martyrdom and exile in quite the same way that English Catholicism is. That's a real takeaway for me. That's a, that's a very different experience of Catholicism. And Catholicism on the Western Isles, where I'd love, love to go on holiday to South Uist and to Eriskay and to Barra, is a very different experience from Catholicism in Glasgow, which is an, an, an immigrant, a reintroduction in the 19th century. Teresa Berger once reflected on being a Catholic in America and this Catholic chaplaincy, and she said all these different Catholicisms coming together in this chaplaincy. Actually, that's something I think that Anglicans can reflect on in a positive way as well. How do we hold that kind of thing together? <coughs> so it seems to me as a church historian that one of our challenges to us as ecumenical theologians, and indeed one of the great challenges to our ecumenical endeavour, is to engage with one another in loving and respectful realism recognizing our current varieties, but also recognizing how we changed. And I worry, and this is really what I'm going to explore in the final section of this paper, that our ecumenical methodology sometimes still seems to be de dealing with the situation of divided churches as it existed in the 1950s and the 19, or even the 1940s or even the 1920s, and doesn't actually take on board the real ecumenical achievements and advances that we've experienced in the second half of the 20th century. So this brings us back to the challenges of receptive ecumenism. And having just said that I think we shouldn't be thinking about the church as it, as, as, or rooting what we're doing in the 1920s, uh, the 1940s, I'm actually going to go back to 1920. Because I think these... Bishop, the bishops who were gathered in 1920 to formulate the Lambeth Appeal in the aftermath of the First World War were driven by an urgent sense that it was in part the European Church's failure in their responsibilities to one another and to society in general that had led to that conflict in the first place. We've already seen the Anglican bishops' view of the denominational churches. We're all organised in different groups, each one keeping to itself gifts that rightly belong to the whole fellowship and tending to live its own life apart from the rest. This gave rise to their vision of a united church in which all the treasures of faith and order bequeathed as a heritage by the past to the present shall be possessed in common and made serviceable to the whole body of Christ. Now it's apparent from the text of the appeal and also from how the appeal came about, but I'm not going to go into that for reasons of time. If you want to know, we can deal with that in the questions that one of the main questions that was exercising the bishops in 1920 was that of episcopacy. The appeal re revisits the Lambeth Quadrilateral, and it clearly had little problem with the first three articles. The Holy Scriptures, the creeds, and the sacraments were things that they could easily find a formulation for. They found it harder when they came to ministry, and it's very interesting how what they say about ministry. So, a ministry acknowledged by every part of the church as possessing not only the inward church call of the spirit, but also the commission of Christ and the authority of the whole body. Now, that is a very interesting formulation. If that had been all they said in 1920, then we would be in a different place with many of our, particularly our Protestant partners. The bishops went on to say... May we not reasonably claim that the episcopus is the one means of providing such a ministry? It's not, they said, that we call into question for a moment the spiritual reality of the ministries of those communions which do not possess the episcopate. On the contrary, we thankfully acknowledge that these ministries have been manifestly blessed and owned by the Holy Spirit as an effective means of grace. But we submit that considerations alike of history and of present experience justify the claim which we make on behalf of the episcopate. And they go on um, for quite a long text, and I'm not going to pick up. Um, they were saying, but what, in the middle of this text, you'll see in the highlighted bit, we greatly desire that the office of bishop should be everywhere exercised as representative and constitutional, and more truly express all that ought to be involved with the master family in the title Father of God. Now what I find really intriguing about this text, and you can see how it develops in, very, in the redactions of the appeal, um, is that in responding to their proviso about, yes, shall we, can we not claim that it's bishops, 
the bishops showed a real openness to acknowledging that all denominations preserve the gifts which rightly belong to the whole fellowship and have the potential to share with others, and that they also affirm the spiritual reality of the ministries of other churches, whether Episcopal or non-Episcopal, and thankfully acknowledge that these ministries have been manifestly blessed and owned by the Holy Spirit as effectively mean, effective means of grace. Now that articulation, that affirmation has been articulated in mutual recognition of us, of, of by Anglicans on, and other churches. Um, for instance, in the Porvo Agreement, in the Rui Agreement, um, in the Fetalane Agreement, which get, didn't get on the slide, in the Anglican Methodist Covenant, all of which are agreements which um, come allow, um, um, which allow mutual um, Eucharistic hospitality, pulpit sharing, and this affirmation, mutual affirmation of each other's churches. And Anglicans and other churches have also gone further. Um, in the Porvo Agreement, the Waterloo Agreement, called to common mission, um, Anglicans and Lutherans have entered into agreements which do all those things and also uh, um, allow for reconciliation of ministries. These are important milestones in moving forward with the recognition of oversight and episcopate. I do ask myself sometimes how these agreements um, feed into the ARCIC process, and that would be quite interesting to hear from people involved in ARCIC um, afterwards how they do. But I also want to reflect on the way in which these agreements show us underlying developments um, which actually change the landscape in which we are undertaking our ecumenical work. If we go back to thinking about 1920, think about that 1920 call for the episcopate to be exercised in a representative and constitutional manner. In 1920, I think I'm right in saying that it is only the American Episcopal Church which actually had a structure of org an organisation which had bishops and synods which involved lay people and a general convention. It was set up that way. It's a church which, from the beginning, um, drew in a synodical representative government. In 1920, the Church of England had, um, had convocations, but they had no lay representation on them. Actually, that's not quite true. It is just changing. Um, in the middle of the First World War, the first moves towards having a National Church Assembly start to be put together, and actually 1919, the first Church Assemblies are just starting to happen. Anglican churches today all have synodical governments linked with episcopacy um, in which lay people are representative. This is not something that Anglicans just discovered. It's not something that Anglicans have always had. This is something that has emerged in the 20th century. I don't think we're often open enough in our ecumenical dialogues to say, actually, this for us is a massive change a really significant change and this is how we did it and this is it's a change that we continue to work at the church ring is constantly thinking about how to get the balance around uh, in synod, with synods better um, it's also a, a, a development which is not has never yet been reflected in um, and Anglican episcopal ordinals um, although i've been part of agreement um, an Anglican-Lutheran agreement, which, if it's agreed, will actually mean that the Anglicans change their ordinal to acknowledge the relationship between bishop and synod. Um, and um, that's a really interesting dynamic. So, things have changed. Um, <coughs> mutual recognition, uh, mutual invitations to those of, um, to, of other denominations to preach are actually in... Um, Anglican circles now quite a standard thing. Think back though to the 1920s. George Bell, who was at that time Dean of um, Canterbury, wanted to invite a leading churchman, free churchman, to preach in the pulpit at Canterbury Cathedral. He wrote to every single clergyman in the Diocese of Canterbury to explain why he was doing it and what he intended to do it and to root that invitation in the Lambeth Appeal. That would be unthinkable today. The need to do that would be unthinkable today. In 1950, George Bell, again, he was a pioneer in many of these ecumenical events, extended a, an invitation to a group which was, had gathered in Chichester. By then, he was, he'd been long been Bishop of Chichester by then. 
um, gathered at Chichester Cathedral to discuss the developments of the, of the World Council of Churches, which was being established at that time, and he invited them all to receive communion. There was a, a, an uproar in the national press. I don't think today anybody would really even notice. These scenarios remind us that our ecumenical situation has changed. But they also may remind us that our ecumenical methodology hasn't always changed to reflect the changing situation in which we find ourselves. And one of the things that strikes me over and over again is that even in places where formal agreements are not in place, many lay people in particular are comfortable attending services and receiving communion in congregations belonging to other denominations. And also mutual invitations to preach are not necessarily dependent on, on, on the existence of, of, um, of agreements. I think my own experience might be a case in point. As a child, I attended Methodist Sunday School and was often at Methodist services because of that, because our parish church had no Sunday School and my parents wanted us to attend Sunday School. When I was at university, I was a regular attender at the college chapel, which was Anglican, but I also frequently attended a Baptist, service, uh, a Baptist church in Cambridge because the preaching there was stupendous um, on Sunday mornings. I'm a lecturer in theology. I have taught in German faculties of Protestant theology, in German and in Swiss faculties of Old Catholic theology. I teach in the theology faculty at Glasgow now, which was originally a reformed faculty. And over the course of my career, I've trained students for Lutheran, United, Reformed, Old Catholic and Anglican ministries, and I've contributed to the formation of students who are now Baptist ministers, Salvation Army officers, and possibly even Roman Catholic priests. <coughs> All of that, it seems to me, is ecumenical activity, much of which would not have been possible in the day of, of much more confessionally focused faculties, and which continues to be very difficult in places like Germany. I took a really interesting group to, um, we had a joint seminar with a, 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 with a class in Mainz, um, and um, my students were all confessions and none, and theirs were all Protestants. All of that teaches me important things about my own theological understanding and my own Christian existence, but as well as about the other traditions I encounter. The benefits of indwelling and inhabiting other religious traditions often include an a deeper in understanding of one's own tradition. But my main point here is that I think we need to think much more seriously and radically and honestly about the realities of how people engage with confessions and denominations in a context which is not only, increasingly not only post-denominational but also post-Christian. As Julie Clegg reminded us yesterday, the questions of churches are asking themselves and each other increasingly do not reflect the urgent questions of our people, whether ethically or ecumenically. Two more brief points. The first is to relate that to the insights draw, drawn from this lived experience. Training students for ministry in a variety of churches focuses my mind on the inadequacy of many of our discussions of validity of ministry. Frankly, I don't believe that the ministries of my Anglican or Old Catholic students are going to be qualitatively different or somehow more valid from those of my Lutheran, United or Reformed students simply because of the ordering of their churches. The second is to point to concept, contextual nature of concepts of unity. There have been a few sideswipes over the last two days at the notion that federation or federalism might constitute an inadequate, uh, inadequate understanding of unity and the intention or the implication that it doesn't. I've spent the past 30 years living partly in the Federal Republic of Germany. I have gained an enormous respect for the way in which a federal union can not only hold together disparate cultures and economic structures, but also do so in a unity which often feels much more balanced and equitable in its uses and distribution of resources than a unity which is focused in one southeastern city. I think we need to take much more seriously the possibilities offered to us by federal unity and to think about how they can be usefully applied in the church situation. 
And it seems to me that an approach of receptive ecumenism might call us to look again at some of the ways in which our own experiences of political unity and political normativity actually define our theological expectations and our theological prejudices. Thank you very much. This has been an unusually wide-ranging event. And in this final paper, we're focusing not on what has been, nor on achievements already banked, but on unfinished business and tasks ahead, at what still needs to be done on the journey toward full communion, and at how that might appropriately be done. The paper does two key things. First, it introduces some methodological points. And then it summarizes a series of specific proposals for Catholic learnings, which would, I believe, serve both the quality of whole church Catholic flourishing and also the furthering of Anglican Catholic communion. So first half, first main section, the whither to now of the Anglican Catholic ecumenical journey and the how. It might be assumed that the most direct way to proceed is to list all the continuing points of substantive difference between Anglican churches and the Catholic Church, and then to seek to resolve them using a combination of tried and tested bilateral ecumenical approaches. In this kind of approach, appeal would likely be made to such approaches as, number one, clarifying any mistaken understandings of one tradition about the other. Second, drawing upon fresh scholarship to indicate fresh possibilities for shared understanding and practice. And thirdly, establishing the legitimacy of a diversity of expression and practice and a differentiated consensus across the traditions. In a sense, this and Susan's uh, Woods paper um, as Susan indicated, she would um, say that we still need to approach this in the dialogues in this kind of way. And it's not without some cause that that um, line would be taken. For these and indeed other such approaches have been remarkably effective in formal bilateral work over the past five decades. And perhaps the high watermark of a real achievement there is the 1999 signing of the Joint Declaration on the Doctrine of Justification. Now, this is to contract and telescope things dreadfully, but um, by contrast, as any familiar with uh, receptive ecumenism will know, I do not view these erstwhile successful strategies as well-suited to overcoming the remaining formal obstacles to Anglican Catholic communion at this point. I'm not saying that they won't come back at some future point and have greater bite then, but at the moment, the issues that are before us, I don't think that those historically important strategies are well suited. Let's take just two of our communion dividing differences in order for me to illustrate what I mean here. One of these is as old as the schism itself, the other somewhat more recent. So firstly, um, let's think of the strongly centralized nature of Catholic decision-making and the theology and practice of the papacy as the structural and sacramental focus of Catholic communion when compared with the dispersed nature of Anglican authority and decision-making and the associated priority accorded to the provincial churches. So that's the first issue that I'm saying doesn't lend itself to being resolved with the strategies that have previously been so useful. The second such um, is the fact that many Anglican churches have judged it valid to ordain women as priests and bishops, whereas the formal organs of the Catholic Church observe Pope John Paul II's decree, and that's more or less, I think, what it was, that the church has no authority to take such a step and indeed that the matter should not even be discussed. Now, with one possible caveat, I maintain that these two examples and other such substantive differences at the formal level, I keep emphasizing that at the formal level, um, cannot be resolved using the erstwhile successful bilateral strategies. 
For example, they can't simply be cleared up by each seeking a more accurate understanding of the other's position and practice. As Arctic Threes walking together on the way demonstrates, we already have a detailed understanding of each other's commitments and practices. That alone does not neutralize difference. It simply gives us clarity about how different we actually are. And nor can their communion dividing nature be resolved simply by viewing them as legitimate alternative ways of expressing the same basic position. For as, for as respectively formally construed by the traditions, they currently represent substantively contrary, not complementary positions. And no amount of differentiated synoptic vision can alter that. Rather, their resolution will require some substantive change in one or both of the traditions, involving some real theological development and ecclesial conversion of the sort that receptive ecumenism promotes. Now, my possible caveat relates to the strategy of seeking a shared way ahead through fresh scholarship, opening fresh understanding. A classic example is the way in which the fresh emphasis on anamnesis opened up new possibilities for speaking about Eucharistic sacrifice together. Similarly, given that formal Catholic resistance to women's ordination now settles, ostensibly at least, on its novelty, then were it possible to demonstrate incontrovertibly that there have indeed been female presbyteral ordinations that were considered valid and licit by the relevant Catholic authorities, then that might be assumed to be a game changer. However, in a post-positivist world, we recognize that incontrovertible historical facts and unarguable proofs, proofs about highly contested matters are somewhere between elusive and illusory. Facts are interpreted, not read raw from Burr reality. Consequently, for as long as the Catholic Church is formally committed to the inconceivability of women's ordination, and probably so committed, I would say, for other auxiliary reasons than just lack of historic precedent, then it is highly likely that any claimed historical evidence for women's ordination will be routinely disputed and alternatively interpreted. So, whilst I do, I really do have very high regard for the contributions that classical bilateral strategies have made, I do not, and indeed the majority of Arctic Three members do not, share the conviction that they remain well fitted to our current situation in Anglican Catholic dialogue. Archic III's alternative route might by comparison appear to be somewhat modest. Rather than focusing directly on issues between our traditions, it focuses on issues and difficulties within them and asks how they might be helped by some learning in transposition from the other. Long term, however, this does intend precisely to be a more effective route to the same goal of full communion. It seeks multiple tactical gains in service of future full strategic achievement. It does not sideline the goal of full communion and settle merely for selective mutual appreciation. It's about identifying and serving the kinds of real development and change within the traditions which are both possible and necessary if they are to A, address their own difficulties, and B, travel to respective new places in which full recognition and the resolution of currently irresolvable differences might become possible. <coughs> well, if that says something about the whither to now and the how of formal Anglican Catholic engagement, what might this look like in practice for the Catholic Church? This requires, I, would, I think, far more 
than simply endorsing the possible areas of Catholic receptive learning identified in Walking Together. These are identified precisely in an initial way as possibilities for consideration, scrutiny and discernment. So the immediate task ahead is for their development and testing. In this paper's second half, second main section, I outline, four, I outline how four such issues might, in my judgment, be potentially be taken forward. These four issues are, firstly, a theology of mission and ministry rooted in the sharing of all the baptized in the three offices of Christ. Secondly, a theology and practice of authority which accords the laity a genuinely deliberative role in Catholic decision-making. Thirdly, a theology and practice of papacy and collegiality, which supports genuine two-way accountability. And fourth, a sacramental theology that can embrace an ordained role for women. Um, I view these as not simply structural matters, I should say, but profoundly theological. And I should also say that they are progressively less developed and more tentative in my thinking. The first is pretty mature for me, and I basically offer it for consideration, albeit very briefly sketched here. The second and third are in process of development for me. I think they hold water, but the bark is not yet fully sealed. The fourth is an initial foray, a floating of fly upon water. So, second half, possible Catholic receptive learnings in service of whole church Catholic flourishing and the furthering of Anglican Catholic communion. And the first of the four points, a theology of mission and ministry rooted in the sharing of all the baptized in the three offices of Christ. Chapter three of Walking Together reflects upon the local and universal dimensions of baptism as a key theological driver for its sustained focus on the necessary interrelationship of the local, regional, and universal dimensions of the church. Thereafter, the sharing of all the baptized in the three offices of Christ as prophet, priest, king recurs as a key theological principle. See sections 52, 81, 83, 96, and 102. Appeal is made to, um, to this principle to support the various proposals for Catholic learning in relation to lay involvement in ecclesial governments, paragraph 99, whole church decision-making, paragraph 100, more open Catholic conversation, 101, more extensive lay involvement in ministry, 102, and the routine occurrence of regional synodal bodies, with deliberative lay involvement, synodal, 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 um, with deliberative lay involvement, 122. This represents a sustained call for a significant rebalancing of the lay clerical relationship and exercise of power within Catholicism. As, nine, as paragraph 96 acknowledges, this is a contentious matter. It stands in some tension with Catholic emphasis on an ontological distinction between lay and ordained. And as I've, as I've argued at greater length elsewhere, widespread Catholic reception of its significant missiological and ministerial implications requires the articulation of an integrated theology of ministry that can at once do justice to the respective specificity of lay and ordained. This is one key task which now lies ahead of us in the light of walking together. The challenge is to avoid either reducing ordained ministry to a mere function or confining the laity to second-class status relative to an apparently ontologically raised state of ordained existence. And Susan and colleagues have made an extremely significant contribution here they advocate a shift from substance ontology, kinds of things, to relational ontology, beings in relationship. In this way of approaching it, the distinctiveness of the ordained is accordingly best thought of not as an interior elevation, 
But in terms of the different set of relationships and responsibilities the ordained take up relative to the ecclesial community by being ordained into pastoral leadership. I basically go with this, and strongly so, but find the focus on pastoral leadership as too restrictive and still too functional. Consequently, as a proposed further development of this approach, I argue that we should think of the distinctiveness in relation of the ordained relative to the laity as lying in there being the formal, visible, publicly authenticated representatives of and sacramental witnesses to the one prophetic, priestly, kingly ministry of Christ in which all the members of the spirit-filled, baptized people of God share. Now, I need to be brief, so let me simply say, I believe, um, firstly, that this understanding would make an important contribution to whole church Catholic flourishing. Secondly, that it would both preserve the integrity of Catholic tradition about the distinctiveness of the ordained and reflect the Archic Three concern to learn from the differing habitus of Anglicanism. Thirdly, that it would provide us with a clear rationale for a Catholic polity capable of far greater resonance with and potential recognition by Anglican churches, to which I'll turn my attention in a moment. And fourth, that it also opens a creative way towards the recognition of ministry in other traditions in a manner commensurate with what Susan has also um, argued for. But that must remain a story for another day. So for now, let us turn our attention to the second part of the second uh, half of the paper, a theology and practice of authority which accords the laity a genuinely deliberative role in Catholic decision-making. As noted, walking together identifies many ways in which the Catholic Church might potentially learn from Anglican tradition in this regard. However, not only does it not articulate, as we've just and commented, and appropriately reconfigured and integrated theology of ministry to support this, it also leaves us without a, any theological account of the need for real reciprocal accountability in the practice of Catholic authority, and B, any practical, even juridical reflections on what it might actually look like in practice to move beyond purely consultative and discretionary models of lay involvement whilst preserving appropriate ordained executive leadership at each level, priest in the parish, bishop in the diocese, etc. These, again, are further, ta- these are further tasks which lie ahead of us in the light of walking together, and which, again, have bearing both on whole church Catholic flourishing and on the journey into deepened Anglican, Anglican Catholic communion. Let me limit myself to a brief sketch of one dual-stranded proposal concerning a procedural reform that would allow for genuine lateral and subsidiary accountability within Catholicism whilst preserving appropriate executive function and authority. Learning through transposition from synodal practice in the Church of England, this dual-stranded proposal is as follows. Firstly, that the appropriate executive at any level of Catholic life be required to bring any significant proposal to the relevant wider synodal body for approval, the parish council or the diocesan pastoral council, etc. And should approval not follow the first such synodal discussion, versions of the proposal could be represented up to two more times. Unless this should be viewed as overly constraining the Catholic executive, the extraordinary right could be reserved in extremis of the executive being able to push through an unpopular proposal if pastoral circumstances were deemed to require it, but in such a way that would would both require justification in the particular circumstances and be recognised by all as lying outside the norm. The second half of this proposal is that correlatively, at each level of Catholic life, the relevant synodal body should be allowed to bring proposals to the relevant executive, again for up to three times within a given time period. And with this, whilst the executive 
might then rule the proposal out of further consideration for a given period, let's say five years, they would not be able to rule out all further consideration of popular proposals for an indefinite period or even permanently, as is the kind of way in which uh, as things are being handled in the Catholic Church currently. Viewed in one way, this dual proposal would represent but a modest alteration of the Catholic system. It would preserve the appropriate executive clerical role at every level, and there'd still be an asymmetric differentiation of authority. Viewed in another way, however, it would be a highly significant step forward that would enshrine the principle of real mutual accountability and power of initiation at every level. It again indicates, I believe, a task before us that would at once enhance whole church Catholic flourishing and strengthen the resonance between the Anglican and Catholic communions. Moving to the third point, the one about which I'll be briefest here, a theology and practice of papacy and collegiality which supports genuine two-way accountability. As earlier indicated, this at once brings us to one of the key areas of proposed Catholic learning in walking together and to the heart of our ecclesiological differences. It's also an issue that resonates strongly both with felt difficulties within the Catholic Church and with the agenda of the current papacy. Again, however, walking together essentially limits itself to proposing that the Catholic Church consider what relevant learning might take place from various aspects of Anglican theology and practice, for example, the Lambeth Council and the role of the Archbishop of Canterbury. The work of specific constructive proposal-making and associated testing in relation to a reconfigured exercise of the papacy is another major task lying ahead of walking together. Time is short, and I do want to offer a few brief thoughts on my fourth point about the need for a sacramental theology that can embrace an ordained role for women. So despite the centrality of this third topic, I will for now simply limit my comments on this need for a theology and practice of papacy and collegiality that supports genuine two-way accountability to saying that my, the first proposal I would roll out here would basically be a specific development of what I've just proposed in the previous point. It would be a rebalancing, which includes as standard the need for formal checks by not as um, a gracious act, but formal requirement of checks by the College of Bishops on the initiating power of the papacy and the organs of the universal church. With that would go the routine ability of the college to make proposals to the papacy and to be able to persist in arguing for them despite any opposition encountered. But leaving all that aside, let us turn now to my final and most exploratory idea, a sacramental theology that can embrace an ordained role for women. Again, this is kind of in bullet points, so um, I'm sorry if it's too condensed. In paragraph 96, in the context of identifying a range of potential Catholic learnings in relation to expanded lay ministerial roles, walking together also expresses support for Catholic explorations of the possibility of ordaining women to the diaconate. These explorations are, of course, a focus of some disagreement. Rather, however, than tarry for now with the question of how this specific issue might best be handled, I wish to offer a few thoughts concerning how the Catholic Church might at some point begin to move forward relative to the even more contentious issue of women's presbyteral ordination. There's a five-fold theological context operating for, in my thinking here um, that, that uh, explains something of the moves I'm trying to make. Let me sketch that five-fold theological context. First is recognition that, I'm talking on, on my own behalf, recognition that whilst objections concerning iconic representation still occasionally recur in formal Catholic teaching, 
basically the official line now majors not on arguments about iconic representation, but on, the, on simply on the claim that the church lacks the authority for such innovation. That's really where the kind of argument has settled out at. Second part of this five-fold context is um, the assumption, my assumption, that given that there is precedent for other significant innovations in Catholic tradition, and even reversals of position, then my assumption is that if we push at this, the official Catholic resistance to women's presbyteral ordination can't simply be to do with the apparent lack of historic precedent. There must be something else going on than just that. So thirdly, third factor, is an assumption on my behalf that a key issue here, I think actually when we push it, the real issue, the key issue that's going on here, and actually I think an issue that I really want to, I'm not identifying it to then sort of poo-poo it, I really think this is a really important issue needs to be taken very seriously. I think behind all of this, the real issue is the core Catholic concern, the kind of defining um, gift, as it were, or, or const gift constraint of Catholicism, is the core Catholic concern to maintain unity and not risk fragmentation. I think that's what's really going on here, however it's dressed up theologically elsewhere. Fourthly, fourth factor, is a recognition that this core Catholic principle, vital Catholic principle, we need to recognize that it cuts both ways. The emphasis tends to get placed on, if we do that, what will happen to the unity of the church? It cuts both ways, though. Let's recognize the Catholic church is already hemorrhaging people and has been doing for quite some time, not simply to do with secularization. Hemorrhaging people because of its refusal to engage this and other contentious issues. The fifth thing I would want to say is um, a conviction, a conviction that I think for bishops, um, in tension, in tension with the break, the break of fear of fragmentation, which I think operates very strongly in the Episcopal psyche and for reasons that I take seriously as I'm, as I'm outlining. What I'm wanting to suggest is that that break, that understandable, legitimate, appropriate break, needs to be balanced by an accelerator. The accelerator of um, a threefold Joannine principle. Three times, three times in the Gospel of John, it is on the lips of Jesus. Not one of those you have given me have I lost. That should, that should be as centrally within the Episcopal Catholic psyche as the concern for if we do that, what might result in terms of fragmentation. Not one of those you have given me have I lost. I don't think we can claim that with any great conviction. So what might be a possible way forward here? Well, now I want to identify some moves which I think are all possible. Not, they're not wacky. I think the following sets of moves are all actually possible. So let's just go through them and then see where that might take us when we put them together. Um, firstly, I think conceivable is the move to a clear teaching, the move to a clear teaching on the full unqualified equality of women that does not depend, as current Catholic teaching in this regard largely does, that does not depend on the prejudicial ideology of nuptial complementarity indifference, which has been introduced into modern Catholic theology through the work of Hans Urs von Balthasar, has been given magisterial validation and actually represents a remarkable innovation in Catholic tradition. So I, want, I think it is entirely conceivable that we have an unqualified teaching on the full equality of women that doesn't depend on that particular um, ideology. Secondly, I see as conceivable the move to a clear rejection of iconographic arguments against pres women's presbyteral ordination as fundamentally incompatible with the practice and theology of baptism, 
and the canonization of women saints. Thirdly, I see as entirely conceivable the move to a clear acknowledgement that significant innovations have been and can be discerned as appropriate in appropriate ways. That's, that's not wacky, that's conceivable. Fourthly, conceivable also is the move, now this is, this is a bit more lateral. Fourthly, I think conceivable is the move to intentional reflection, more intentional reflection on the fact that the Catholic Church already has a working model for the holding of a plurality of polities in full communion with each other in the multiple Eastern Rite churches with married priests in contrast to the maintenance, frequently on theological grounds and not just practical grounds, of the norm of celibacy in the Latin Rite. What's my point? The point is that in diaspora contexts, let's think of North America in particular, these rites, with significantly differing cultural norms, are both geographically overlapping and relatively discreet, but in full communion with each other, without, and this is the crunch, without questioning the validity and legitimacy of order in each other's rights, despite the significant differences. Now, as we are seeing, both with the potential relaxing of the norm of celibacy in relation to the Amazon region, and with the proposed handling of Eucharistic reception for divorced and remarried by bishops' conferences, when the Catholic Church does begin to move on a topic, it does not necessarily need to move en masse as one in order to remain as one. In fact, quite the opposite might be the case. Is it conceivable then that at some point future for there to be a right within Catholicism in which ordained women serve, which is in full communion with those other rites in which it continues to be the case for some time at least that women are not ordained, but with recognition of the validity of order across this difference. Now, I know it will be in your minds, so let me say this tentative idea is intended to be substantively different to the Anglican practice of distinct Episcopal oversight for those who cannot accept the validity of female ordination. But there are clearly things to learn, both positive and negative, from Anglican experience in this and other regards. Again, the hope is jointly for a healthier Catholicism and deeper, more vital possibilities for real Anglican Catholic communion. Thank you.